It's that time again. We go beyond the jive. Join our hosts, John Swan and Natalie B. Brave the sting of beekeeping to reap the sweet rewards. All you hive jive junkies out there, this is the Hive Jive. Well, I normally we don't say good morning, good afternoon, or everything, but it's early and I can't help but say good morning. <laughs> good morning. I made Dawn get up early today. Because <laughs> yesterday yeah, she was did. Valentine's Day and it was my 20th uh, wedding anniversary. So he graciously accepted to postpone. <laughs> Happy anniversary. Thank you. Yeah, I had like, so normally we record on Tuesdays and then they come out on Wednesday morning and this is Wednesday morning. So this one will come out today. Um, So really no weird time paradoxes for a change here on this one, unless you're listening to it out of sync, you know, years in the future and then that's on you. But um, yeah, no, I, I had realized that it was Valentine's Day when I woke up yesterday morning and we had our normal scheduled recording. So I had sent you a message and I was like, hey, if you want to like postpone it because it's valentine's day that's totally fine and then you responded back with well apparently it's my 20th wedding anniversary and i was like that totally trumps valentine's day <laughs> like, up on me i was like you know we didn't realize that's what it was no plans whatsoever but we ended up um going out to celebrate so very good well i'm glad to hear that yeah so uh, that all being said, it is early morning. I feel like this is old school in the radio studio with Ken days because I was very much not awake when we would start those. <laughs> By the end of the sessions, you were heavily caffeinated. I Caffeinated and on a sugar high. Yep. <laughs> yeah, I, I would make uh, well, a lot of times I would have Ken make it. He would do what he called like a Snickers bar coffee. Um, mm-hmm. It was basically a lot of sugar and creamer and then some flavor stuff that he put in there um like a toffee stuff or something but it it was really good it was like drinking liquid candy um and that's how i would <laughs> start the morning liquid candy <laughs> yeah. i love that luckily most of the time not always but most of the time i would get there while he was still doing his part of the show and so i had time to sit there and like drink the coffee and kind of wake up a little bit and then uh, we would start ours so yeah <laughs> Yeah. So back to the old days, early, early mornings. Uh, okay. So today we do have a topic to to dive right in here while my brain is on the one cylinder that it has before 9 a.m. <laughs> right. Exactly. Anytime after 9 a.m., it'll start firing on all cylinders. But before then, it's like minimum, bare minimum. So may I, may I remind you that our last recording, we both were out of it a bit. You we were. Yeah. So this is a two for two. Sorry, guys. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's a different it's a different kind of out of it. The other one was like, you know, borderline migraine, everything shut down and you had back pain and multiple shots that day. And like, yeah, so you were in pain. I was in pain. We managed it was supposed to be a short episode and it ended up being like 45 minutes long. <laughs> right, exactly. We, you know, I'm not sure we always made sense, but we did. No. <laughs> we toughed it out. We tried to we tried to string it all together in there. So. For today, though, we are going to be talking about the whole concept of save the bees. And and I'll put that in air quotes, save the bees and how the honeybee itself has been the poster child for that movement. But the movement itself is actually greater than just the honeybee. 
And most of the bees that are really, really, really in danger of having their, well, everything taken away from them, their their uh, habitat as far as forage, their nesting sites, like all that kind of stuff, those are mainly the, the solitary bees, the native bees, and they don't really get as much attention out there in the spotlight. So the question that uh, we are going to discuss today or that we will pose is, is it okay for the honeybees to be the poster child for the whole save the bees movement? Because it doesn't say save the honeybees, it's save the bees, period. So is it okay for the honeybees to be the poster child for that movement? Or is it actually doing more harm than good? Like, is it good? Is it bad? Is it kind of innocuous? Like, is there some upsides to it? So that's kind of the platform that we are going to come from today for our little beekeeper chat discussion. Um, and I'm going to let you take the first swing at that. <laughs> okay, very good. So one of the things that um, always amazed me with the Save the Bees movement is that there's a lot of people that are trying to capitalize on this and sell merch, oh, yeah. right? So you see all the time people contacting you and just saying, you want those bracelets? That's you right. T-shirts. Send us 50 bucks. We'll send you a 30 cent rubber bracelet. And exactly. then we might send three cents to a, a Save the Bees thing, but we're keeping the yeah. rest. <laughs> and I mean, that's kind of a really, there's nothing to it. It's not to save the bees. It's to make money and nothing of it goes to any kind of causes that can help any kind of bees, honeybees or native bees. And it kind of leads me to, um, this is a segue to the fact that when they say save the bees, the slogan save the bees was initially, I think, meant for native pollinators and not necessarily honeybees. However, uh, the plight of the honeybees, which are an important uh, pollinator for our crops and commercial beekeepers are a huge part of our economy. Um, they are suffering from pesticides, just like all the other bees, but they've got an economic value, which the native bees don't have. And there's research on honeybees that is not necessarily available on native bees. So there's a lot of focus on honeybees for save the bees. And uh, the problem is that the native pollinators are not getting the attention that they need. And that's who more than the honeybees need saving because there's a lot of things going on with native bees. Um, they are, first of all, they're not all um, very social. A lot of them are solitary. Um, they're, some of them are very um, adapted to specific plants and uh, specialized, whereas honeybees are more um, generalists, if you'd like, they're opportunistic and they will pollinate a whole bunch of plants as long as they can get their tongues into uh, to get the nectar and um, those plants have uh, pollen, they can make use of it. So native bees are actually much better pollinators uh, a lot of times than honeybees. The problem, the, the difference is that honeybee colonies have thousands of individuals, which together can perform very heavy duty pollination, but a single native bee will usually be a lot more efficient at pollinating plants than a honeybee would. So there's a lot of things that are uh, focusing on honeybees and their protection and research, all that stuff is focusing on honeybees. But really, I think that what we should be looking at and when we save the bees, that was the initial intent is uh, looking more at native bees and potentially protecting them from the competition that the honeybees represents in their food sources. And so that's kind of my initial take on this. And I'm sure I'm kind of touching to a bunch of the things you want to talk about too. 
Well, so it I do think that it is definitely a double-edged sword. So if you, if you take out of the whole concept, if you take out the whole marketing and everybody jumping on the bandwagon and using it as a way to just gain money, um, mm-hmm. because unfortunately with, with anything that happens out there, somebody's going to see an opportunity to make a quick buck and capitalize on people's emotions. That's why, like, I love, I love animals. I love dogs and I would love to save them all. But you take a sad photo of a dog and a sad video and you put in some Sarah McLaughlin in there and like tears start flowing and people are then in an emotional state and they want to go through and they want to do whatever they can. So people realize that that was, that was a random analogy, not bees, but anyhow. Everybody has seen those commercials. They come on like every freaking year around Christmas time. And you're just like, oh, my God, turn it off. But <laughs> it's uh, it's one of those things. They capitalize on the emotion and then they're able to go out there and try to take money from you. And whether or not they truly are donating is a whole nother question, because there's a lot of them out there that are not. And most of those people are the ones that if you have any type of Instagram following at all, You'll put out a post and they'll immediately reach out and say, oh, my God, I love your post. Like we you totally should be a brand representative for us and an ambassador, a brand ambassador. And I'm like, OK, first off, you love my post. Why don't you represent my stuff? Um, right. Don't come to me and tell me I should represent your stuff. And most of that stuff is a T-shirt or a rubber bracelet that you right. can wear to, quote unquote, save the bees. And you know, do they donate some? Yeah, they might donate a small percentage of what they're getting to some bee related cause. But is it going to the right cause? And is it honestly enough of a percentage? Most of the time, that's no, there are exceptions to the rule. There are organizations out there that donate almost 100% of what they get to those types of causes. But they're not the ones that are actively pursuing you chasing you down saying, hey, hey, pay attention to me, send me money, send me money. So it's kind of out of balance on that regard. So all of that aside, the one thing I would say that can be beneficial, regardless of which insect is the poster child, and in this case, it's been the honeybee, the one thing that's beneficial is going to depend on what it is they're telling you to do to quote unquote, save the bees. If they're saying, hey, save the bees, go out there and help preserve any wild native land that is left, plant more native flowers, things along those lines, even if they're telling you that under the guise of this will help honeybees, it's something that I've said many times over. If you are uber into monarch butterflies and you go out there and you plant all of the native species of milkweed that the monarch butterflies would naturally feed on and lay their eggs on, those milkweeds open up into a giant puffy ball bloom that Mm -hmm. all pollinators love. Not all, but most pollinators love. And the honeybees are going to go out there and they're going to partake in that and get nectar and pollen from that. So you might have started off to help the native pollinator for the monarch and you've accidentally, unknowingly helped several other pollinators as well, including the honeybee. So it can work both ways where you're doing something for the honeybee. You're planting a lot of native flowers out there for the honeybees. And therefore you're helping those native bees as well. Another aspect of being able to help things that that would then go by the wayside. So the opposite of this is for a honeybee, once the flower's done and the bloom's gone, the bee is done with it. It's It's got its own colony that it lives in and it's got all the other bees to take care of it, but those native bees don't. And they roost, uh, Bruce, <laughs> sorry, chicken lingo all of a sudden. <laughs> <laughs> they nest inside the dried out hollow tube stalks of a lot of these plants. 
And so, yeah, some of them do. Some of them also nest down in the ground in some bare patches of earth and sandy soils and things like that. So when you go and just clear cut everything, as soon as it's done, you're actually robbing a lot of things. You're robbing the ground of being able to reabsorb the the nutrition from that plant. Uh, depending on the plant, if it's one that regrows from its roots or from the bulbs, they need to reabsorb all of the energy and moisture from the stalks and stems as well. You're taking away the potential habitat for some of these native insects. And so it could actually do more harm than good. And trust me, like my mother's one of these people that it's unsightly. She doesn't want to see it. And even though we've been doing this for years now, and we've been doing the whole bee thing for years, we still go round and round over. Don't touch that damn weed. Leave it alone. It's not a weed. It's a flower. It's feeding something. And, you know, leave the leaves on the ground because they're helping to protect what's underneath it and make it help it go through the winter and leave the stalks of the things until next spring when stuff just barely starts to come up, you know. Uh, Or if you're going to cut them, don't throw them away. Lay them down so that if there is something inside of it that is gestating, it can still emerge, you know. So it, it can go both ways. It can definitely lead you down a path if it's doing it correctly to where even though you're doing something for the intention of the honeybee, you may be actually helping these other insects as well. Now, if it is save the bees, become a beekeeper, buy lots of colonies, here's a contradictory term for you. Yeah. We don't need any more beekeepers. We don't need somebody to have a thousand more colonies. That is not going to help any anything. It's not going to help any of the other honeybees. It's not going to help any of the native bees because then you get into overpopulation over pollination as far as like you're not over pollinating the plant but there's so many things working the plant then there's no longer any food out there for any of these other insects as well so it could definitely be a slippery slope um and i think it all basically depends on what it is they're telling you to do how are you saving the bees are you saving them because you're buying a rubber bracelet No. no are you saving them because somebody's educating you to go out there and plant more native habitat yes um, so it, it, it really just depends on the angle and the people behind it, I think. Yeah. So to save the bees, you don't have to be a beekeeper and no. you don't have to buy merch. Right. So, but yeah, to your point, planting is very important. Planting native, uh, plants, especially anything that's going to feed your pollinators. That's kind of why we, uh, I put together like a, a plant list for Texas, and put it on our website available for you know people in Texas to kind of go take a look and see what kind of trees and bushes and vines and uh, flowering plants are uh, adapted to the local area and are uh, of special importance to the pollinators in general, but more specifically to honeybees. And so that helps all bees, not just honeybees. Every time we do that and we tell people to uh, plant around our neighbors or friends, if we tell them to cut back on the pesticides, and just kind of campaign against pesticide use. That's going to help all bees, all pollinators as well. Um, the, of course, it has to. Planting needs to be according to your specific conditions in your local area, just like beekeeping is, or any kind of like animal adaptations is. And then um, the, what you have to know is that, <laughs> excuse me, planting for bees is not just um, uh, wildflowers. Uh, that's my one of my you know things where I cringe is everybody's like well I'm planting all those wildflowers but that's not going to cut it you need to plant bushes you need to plant trees trees are like an acre in the sky as far as especially honeybees are concerned and the more you give them food um, for for them to forage on the less they're competing with other native pollinators as well so you have to plant a wide variety a wide range of different flowering plants and trees and bushes 
and do it for the entire season. Now, it's important to remember that if you have too many colonies of bees, to your point, people that are getting into beekeeping to have the bees, they're raising the numbers of the, the intensity at which the land is being used. You know, each colony is going to have, a, an established colony is going to be, you know, 30,000, 40,000 easy uh, bees. So every time you add one more of those, you're really increasing the competition for the food. And um, there's such a thing as carrying capacity for honeybees, but all foraging plants, meaning there comes a point when there's not enough food for everybody. And, and where the bees can get help from the beekeepers, the native bees are not getting help from the beekeepers or anybody for that matter, unless you actually are planting for them. So that's how you can help save, save the bees. And um, to your to your point, in a in a certain way, the bees are the honeybees are kind of a, a canary in a coal mine. Though I want to bring the the up the fact that when we see problems arising for honeybees, that's kind of like a sign that something really wrong is happening, and it's probably really impacting the native pollinators as well. So from that standpoint, bringing the attention of the general public to the plight of the bees, whether they be honeybees or native pollinators by extension, is kind of a good thing from the, the honeybee standpoint. Yes, they're not native and they're competing, but if we are aware of the plight of the honeybees, we tend to focus a little bit more on environmental factors like pesticide and, and lack of forage. Uh, monocultures that can be basically food deserts for all bees. Um, it's important to know also talking about food deserts for, for all bees, the large almond orchards in California, <laughs> kind of like large crops where they're killing the, the herbs, the weeds and everything underneath um, for whatever reason is actually impoverishing the availability of food for all bees, not just honeybees, but all native bees. And then the other aspect of things is that, uh, you know, I mentioned the bees were a little bit generalists and the, 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 a lot of the native bees are very specialized and have co-evolved for millions of years to thrive with specific plants at specific periods. And the flip side of that is that those plants in turn depend on those native bees to thrive whereas honeybees might not necessarily help them out. So it's important to kind of look at all aspects of these equations and save the bees is not save the honeybees, save the bees is save all bees and more specifically, I think native bees. Uh, a great example of the coevolution of specific plants to specific pollinators is the fact of anybody who does gardening and you plant tomato plants. A honeybee will not touch a tomato plant. It doesn't matter how many blooms are on that tomato plant, they won't do it. And the reason they won't do it is because one, it doesn't really provide the nectar for them. And two, they can't get the pollen. But there are two bees that are, well, two, there's a species that has several subspecies. And then there's another species, a bee that goes out and specifically pollinates tomato plants. And that is the sweet bee, the little tiny iridescent, really pretty bee. And it makes a really high-pitched little buzz noise. And then the bumblebees. The bumblebees. They go ahead and they get into these flowers and they grab a hold of the, the stamen that actually has the pollen on it. And they do a very intense vibration that busts all the pollen kernels off of the stamen. And then they can go through and pick them up and 
carry on. And then when they go to the next plant, they've got these little pollen kernels that then go in there and they can cross pollinate the different flowers and stuff, but a honeybee will never touch it. So it's one of those interesting little things that there are some plants that are very readily available for all insects. And then there are other plants that are very specialized and the bees that have grown up for those are very specialized to that specific type of flower and they do certain things for it. Another aspect too of some of the different specializations is that the honeybees carry their pollen on their legs and their pollen packs and the pollen baskets. There's a, a spindle hair in there that they actually kind of shove up through the center of it and they pack everything around it. And so we're very used to seeing the honeybee with like these big old colorful bloomers on because they got these big old bulbs on their back legs. But other bees like the mason bee, for instance, carries the pollen on its stomach. Because of that, the pollen is actually more exposed to a surface area that is also in contact with the flowers every time it goes from flower to flower. So it does a better job at pollinating from flower to flower, whereas, as you mentioned earlier, the single honeybee does not. The single honeybee goes to that flower and then gets what it needs and then goes back to the colony. And a lot of the cross-pollination happens inside the colony as it's sharing samples with its sisters. And then they go back out and visit a flower. Well, then the pollination aspect kind of takes place. So it takes all of them to accomplish the same task that that single mason bee perhaps can pollinate on a specific type of flower. So it is very generalized in some instances. And in other instances, it's extremely specialized. So you have to... Kind of, again, it, it's all about the approach. If you are educating that you're saving the bees and you're doing it in a way that is promoting the habitat, promoting the forage, then you're going to be better off. If you're just talking specifically honeybees and you're promoting to save the bees by trying to grow more beekeepers, that's not going to do anybody any good. Um, the other aspect of the canary in the coal mine, too, though, is that honeybees are managed. They are monitored constantly. And when we do start seeing a problem with them, we can start to go through and try to do some sort of intervention, but it may take longer for that problem to actually expose itself because we're constantly manipulating and managing them. So we may be staving off some of the ill effects before, you know, like basically prolonging how long it would take for us to see those effects. The native bees don't have that aspect. And there could be native bees that are already seriously in danger or already gone before we even see it on the other side of that. So that that's a downside there. Yeah, so I was kind of playing on the internet and I went, I found a website called savethebees.com. And guess what it is? It's saying that basically there's a lot of honeybee losses and then it's, it's a very, very uh, simple website and it has a store where it's selling honey sticks and nukes of bees and comb honey. And it's also saying basically, um, to help the bees, you kind of have to get, you know, basically beehives. <laughs> I'm like, that's not how you save the bees at all. You don't increase the number of honeybee colonies um, to help either honeybees or native pollinators. And obviously this is a perfect example of capitalizing on the concept of save the bees. So a lot of people get upset when you use save the bees for the context of honeybees because of that, because it doesn't really uh, it's it's mostly marketing. It's mostly merch sales. It's not really targeting uh, the efforts to help bees. Right. Most of them are trying to go through and capitalize on the colony collapse disorder, which was very, very, very prevalent, you know, five to 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. And it's taken a lot of industries to slowly kind of catch up with that. So you'll still see it recycled through the news and things as if it was new and it's mm -hmm. not. And we now know a lot of the underlying factors of that. 
and it does still occur, but it's not occurring in as much, you know, in, in as, uh, it, well, <laughs> see, there we go. Brain's still asleep. It's not nine o'clock yet. <laughs> it's not happening as frequently and in as large of numbers as it was in the past. So it's a little bit more manageable. It is still a problem, but we now know these different synergies that are going on to actually kind of help propel that problem. And so therefore we can start to work to undermine that and then hopefully that problem will go away, um, which is a whole other story in general. But a lot of them are, that's what they're capitalizing on is the colony collapse disorder. Honeybee colonies are dying. We've talked a lot about how, yeah, and unfortunately, most of those numbers come from the beekeepers that have the most colonies and take the little or least amount of care with them because they've got so many, they can't really devote the amount of attention that a backyard beekeeper can to their colonies. So it definitely makes it challenging. And as you said, we're beekeepers. So my question to the rest of you listening is, is this a triggering subject or do you have a knee jerk reaction when somebody says, well, you, you, maybe you shouldn't function or focus on the honeybee. You need to focus on some of these other native pollinators. Is that triggering for you? Do you have that reaction of like, well, no, because my bees are important too. Or do you actually understand the, the symbiotic relationship with all the bees and all the flowers out there and how, you know, you have to help both. Right. So, I mean, it's kind of, uh, it kind of goes both ways. And honestly, the best ways you can have bees of all kinds is to provide them with shelter, with food and with um, protection, basically. So in, in, in decreased pesticide use in your environment. So it makes you kind of a better steward of your environment as well. There's an article on envir environmentamerica.org about how to help the bees. That's really good. And um, I'll forward it to you so that you, we can post it um, in the comments for the video, but that's kind of, it's got some good advice. So from bee hotels to providing wind, wind breaks and all kinds of things. I think that's, that's um, that matters. Uh, I was gonna say something and then I forgot. So, you know, it'll come back to me because again, it's morning and, and it's gonna take a minute, but you said something and, and uh, it triggered a thought. But of course, when you try to put your finger on it, it's a poof, it's gone. Poof, so. it's gone. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, I think that, um, you know, the, the other aspect of things is when you do remove the pressure of honeybees, like it happened in New Zealand, um, they lost a lot of bees to the varomite infestation. So that, that population of honeybees quite decreased. Oh, I remember what I was going to talk about. Um, and so it kind of gave way to um, an increase in native pollinators that kind of resurge, that resurgence kind of uh, was very apparent back then. So it's important to realize there's, you know, there's, while there is space for all species of bees, there is some pressure from the honeybees. And, um, but I was going to talk about the decrease in number of colonies that's prompting the uh, concept of helping saving the bees as in the honeybees and colony collapse disorder and we're losing colonies of bees. But a lot of the charts are presenting data that's dating from the early 90s or maybe a little bit before that and the uh, decrease is obvious and, and quite flagrant in uh, colonies of honeybees. But what the data is not usually talking about is when you go back to um, the early 1900, you see a spike around World War II, huge spike where we went up to 6 million colonies of honeybees, I think. And then it decreases and it's, it's usually around 4 millions. And, and that's kind of like the normal amount of colonies of honeybees. 
and we are 2.92, almost 3 million. So we actually came back up a little bit um, from the losses that arose after the arrival of the Varomites that kind of were quite destructive and brought the numbers down to like 2 million or something, I forget. But the point I was gonna make is that uh, a lot of the numbers of the colonies of honeybees are market driven. It's a it's a law, laws of economics, it's supply and demand, right? So a lot of the demand for honeybee colonies is coming from uh, big agriculture that's needing them for pollination of their crops. And that was not the case before big ag developed as much as it did. But mostly for World War II, what happened is that there was an explosive and I forget the name of it, same, same something. Anyway, it required beeswax to make it more stable. It was a British explosive that was uh, too unstable initially, and they added beeswax and other things and just stabilized it and made it created a huge demand for beeswax products, which in turn increased the number of colonies of honeybees uh, to that 6 million. And after the war, it was no longer needed, obviously, which is why there was a huge decrease in number of colonies of honeybees. So when we talk about CCD and we talk about the loss of numbers of colonies and their decrease over time, we need to look at the bigger picture. Is it really because colonies of honeybees are in danger per se, or is it because the demand has decreased and therefore the numbers of colonies have decreased accordingly because they go hand in hand, lots of uh, demand and supply, right? So let's just not kind of look at the uh, short time picture and, and keep a, a more, you know, um, broad picture kind in mind as far as I think that that's important because the honeybees are not in so much danger as um, people make it, sound, make it sound to be as far as CCD is concerned. I think that the, a lot of the dangers that they are exposed to, however, are the same dangers that are um, the, making the plight of the native bees. Pesticides, climate change, uh, lack of forage, lack of habitat, all that is putting pressure on all the bees. But the honeybees are getting a lot of help from beekeepers. So they're, I'm not concerned about honeybees as far as, I am concerned in some ways about the amount of pesticide uh, that are uh, applied by the beekeepers and the amount of foreign substances that are brought into the hives and the stress that beekeepers put their honeybees under, which is not good for them. But that's another story. That's a, that's a different topic for another day. That's a completely <laughs> different topic in a, a box of mine. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> so there you go, everybody. There, there is the, the pros and cons. Um, I, I, I don't know. I feel like maybe we we touched on both sides a little bit equally. Maybe not. It might be one-sided, but if so, it's now up to you now that you've gone through and listened to this to see if you agree. Do you do you feel the same way? Do you again, like I said earlier, do you have that knee-jerk reaction and and there's something going on in there? And if so, why? Stop and go through and think about that and question why is it that I have such a guttural reaction when I hear somebody say that, either for or against it? Mm-hmm. That can go through and help inform a lot of different things about you and your beekeeping and, and the way that you actually approach nature and the land and everything. So definitely, you know, mull this over, maybe listen to it again, see what you think about it. Let us know. And uh, until then, we look forward to talking to you again next week on another beekeeper chat. But okay. as always, before then, until then, whatever it's supposed to be, <laughs> be good. <laughs> and be mindful about all bees. There you go. Bye-bye, everybody. Bye, guys. This Hive Jive production was made possible by amazing patrons like you. 
and we appreciate your support. To all our Hive Jive junkies out there, you truly are the bee's knees. <laughs> <laughs>